So swag.com, that's an amazing yeah. domain. We knew we needed to have a really strong brand. 30,000 companies in the space and there's no go-to place that anyone thinks that that's the place to go get promotional products. There's no brand in this space. Every single promotional product site just felt like schlocky, throwaway, not a place you want to go to buy stuff. And swag is just like the perfect name. So we went after to try to buy it. And the person was asking for 1.2 million. I, I thought it was worth it. Even at the time, it's just a lot of money to spend on an unproven model. We worked out a really creative solution. We negotiated the person down to 200,000. And then once we had that price, we still didn't have the money to pay for it. So we gave him some equity in the business and we were able to exclusively license and use the domain name for a two-year period with the option to buy it at a $200,000 price tag. So then we could literally launch the business from 2016 with the name, with the brand. And ultimately when we make enough sales or we prove that the model is, is worth it, then we would go all in and buy the domain. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 12345678910 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend, Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups 
startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey guys, welcome back to the Business Method Podcast. I'm Chris Reynolds and today we have Jeremy Parker on the line. Jeremy is a co-founder and CEO of Swag.com, and I love that domain, by the way. I'm going to have to ask you, you, Jeremy, how you got that. Swag has been ranked number 218 on Eek Magazine's top 5,000 list. They are a top e-commerce platform for purchasing promotional materials, offering a wide variety of customizable branded content. Swag warehouses products until customers would like to have them delivered to remote clients and employees in mass or individually. Jeremy and the Swag team have created some amazing results over the past few years. They did 365,000 in business in year one, 1.1 million in year two, 7 million in year three, and this last year in 2020 during the pandemic, 15.5 million. They have grown to over 2,000% over the first three years, creating partnerships with thousands of companies, including TikTok, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix, and Spotify. Jeremy himself is a serial entrepreneur, having created multiple successful organizations over the course of his entrepreneurial career. Jeremy went on to start multiple companies with his brother, David, and notable partner, Jesse Itzler, co-founder of the Marquis Jets and the Atlanta Hawks. His first company, Tippet, an e-commerce platform that distributes unique promotional codes through social media, went on to be acquired by a publicly traded company. Jeremy himself was named one of Crane's New York 40 under 40. And one of my favorite traits about him, Jeremy's passionate about spreading positivity and kindness in business while infusing awareness into how we consume. He's on the podcast today, guys. Jeremy, welcome to the show. How are you, man? Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. How's life? How are you doing? Is everything good? Things are good. Yeah, just uh, had a baby. So we're in oh, that congrats. kind of six month, thank you so much, period of like sleep training. We just got our first nap today, so we're all pumped about that. That that might be a really good question because we talk about like performance optimization a lot. So, as a high achieving, successful entrepreneur, you know, for the past you know decade or however long you've been doing it, how has your performance and sleep training and optimization shifted or changed? And what has changed for you since having that baby? Has your schedule changed? What's that look like? Yeah, when I was much younger, I was waking up relatively late, you know, I would say like nine, 10 o'clock. I was on my own schedule. I thought entrepreneurship meant you can make your own hours, which it does. But as I've grown, as I try to, you know, I wouldn't say perfect my craft, but as I try to get, become a better entrepreneur, I think consistency and time management is really important. So having like a really early schedule, waking up a lot earlier. So I have, my routines definitely changed with my, with my new baby. Um, because she doesn't sleep or we're trying to get her to sleep or some nights she doesn't sleep. So I'm constantly up, but I, I, I like pre baby. It was like six 30 in the morning, wake up hour workout in the morning. You know, I just had a very strict routine and I would never deviate from it. And now with the baby, things do change, do shift a little bit, but I'm still trying to find time for myself, which I think is very important for entrepreneurs to have that, that moment for themselves before the day starts so they can kind of clear their head and dive right into it. Are you, do you feel like your sleep is as good as it was pre-baby? 
And no, absolutely not. No, no. I mean, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> way more things to worry about now, real life stuff um, to worry about, you know, things that I'm doing right now have, have a real impact in my wife and my, my kids. And for, for a long period of time, I was a single guy. I was, you know, I got married at 32. So mm-hmm. my priorities have definitely shifted over, over the course of the years. Uh, and, and so it's, you know, I think just in life, you have to just embrace the change and, and it's been a really exciting, exciting year for us. Yeah. So when you're a single person, like, and you can manage your time really, really well, right? Your output is, is significant. It's high. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, your sleep is different now post baby. And mm-hmm. how do you feel? Do you feel like you're putting the same output or into your business and your, your personal life both? Or are you having to back off a little bit and rest more because the sleep's disrupted? I, it's a good question. I think my output is the same, um, but it's much more challenging for me to do the same output. So, you know, I just, I'm even working harder and it's kind of a weird thing. The first five years, four years of the business, I thought I couldn't have worked harder. I was crazy. And now I feel like I'm even working that much, even harder to keep the same output because I have just a lot more things I have to accomplish every single day than I used to. Right. That makes sense. Cool. But, and you're working from home too now, right? Working from home. Yeah. I mean, it's been a crazy year. The pandemic hit in March of last year. Um, my wife was pregnant at the time. So we had to move out of the city because no one really, you know, the city, New York city was the epicenter of the pandemic and no one really knew the effects that I have on babies. So we moved into my parents' house for four months. Uh, didn't see any friends. It was absolutely nuts. And then went back to the city, had the baby, lived in my sister's apartment because we had to give up our apartment. And now we're living in our own place in New Jersey. So the last kind of nine months have been like jumping around and living in different places just to make it work. Yeah. And that's what I love about like the entrepreneurial spirit. It's not about, uh, it's about doing what's effective, right? When times change, you do, you had to move out of the city, then back into the city, then into a sister's apartment. And and now you're back in Jersey to make sure that everything works and continues. Um, the business still grows. Family's okay. Like it's about being adaptable, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Cool. So swag.com, man, um, I got to ask you, how did you buy this domain back in the day? Where did you get it? Like, that's an amazing yeah. domain. Yeah. So when we started the business, we knew we needed to have a really strong brand. I mean, mm-hmm. think of the industry as a whole, promotional products. Um, there's 30,000 companies in the space, and there's no go-to place that anyone thinks that that's the place to go get promotional products. There's mm-hmm. no brand in this space, which was always kind of curious to me. You know, like if Facebook's buying a thousand t-shirts and they clearly care about their brand, wouldn't they want to work with a company that also cared about their brand? And it just felt weird that every single promotional product site just felt like schlocky, throwaway, not a place you want to go to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. And when we figured out, obviously, we had to create a really strong brand, great user experience, but the name really does you know, play an impact. And we wanted to buy something that is so memorable. And swag is just like the perfect name. So we went after to try to buy it. This was in 2000, end of 2015, early 2016. And the person was asking for $1.2 million. Obviously, we didn't have that. I, I was, you know, even though I, I thought it was worth it, even at the time, it's just a lot of money to spend on an unproven model. Um, ultimately, we worked out a really kind of creative solution. We negotiated the, the person down to two hundred thousand, mm-hmm. um, and then once we had that price, we still didn't have the money to pay for it. So we gave him some equity in the business, a small token of equity, and we were able to exclusively license and use the domain name for a two-year period with the option to buy it at a $200,000 price tag. So then we could literally launch the business from 2016 with the name, with the brand. And ultimately when we make enough sales or we prove that the models is, is worth it, then we would go all in and buy the domain. And that's what we did about six months into it. 
we're making enough sales that we're able to raise a little bit of money with our track record to acquire the domain. It was, you know, the most streamlined process possible for us. Nice. Um, what was your negotiation tactics to go from 1.2 million all the way down to 200 K? Like, how are you communicating? Did you have a broke, like a in between? No, no, mediator? no, we, we did it. We did ourselves, but the, I, I believe we got very lucky because the owner of the domain name who's selling it, um, I don't think he was marketing it to the right people. He was marketing it to the buyer of like the Justin Bieber buyer, like the more urban definition of having swagger or be. And I think if he just understood kind of the meaning and what the current buyer for the promotional industry, it's a $40 billion industry is calling it. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been very clear to him to go after Staples and go after foreign print and go after all the biggest companies in our space. I'm sure they would have bought it, but maybe not. You know, a lot of these, uh, these companies didn't really think about it at that time, five years ago. Now they, it would, it would be obvious, but back then they might not have thought about it. How long was that process? Did you say six months? It was about like about five to six months back and forth, you know, uh -huh. him going cold, not responding, him you know, starting <laughs> up the conversation until at some point, 200,000 made, made, made a little sense for him. So were you entertaining ideas of other names during that time? Because I'm sure. Yeah, tons, tons. Yeah. yeah, we think of every other possible name, but it always came back to if we're, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Let's go yeah. all in. Let's make it happen. Yeah, I like that, man. I like that a lot. Um, so you've been an entrepreneur for a long time. You started, was Tippett your very first business? No, no. My first business was, uh, right when I graduated college. So I was a documentary filmmaker and mm -hmm. when I was 18, I made this documentary with my brother, uh, called 1% that ultimately won the Vail Film Festival. Um, and I remember I was at the Vail Film Festival, big festival, and there's half the room are these celebrities that everyone's heard of and half the room are these more artistic, struggling artists. And I had like an internal gut check and I asked myself, Number one, am I good enough? And number two, do I really love what I'm doing? Is this like my career? Do I want to do this? And I honestly didn't think I was that good, even though we won. It was kind of like a weird kind of hmm. position to just win. I didn't feel like I had necessarily the skills to make this um, a career. And I also didn't really truly love it. You know, it wasn't really my, my true passion. I always wanted to be a marketing person, um, even before film school. And I just went to the film route because I thought it would be the best way for me to learn how to tell stories. This is the early onset of YouTube. And I thought, yeah. you know, it'd be very worth it to be able to tell a story through the medium of video. So that's really how I found myself in video, but it wasn't really my passion. Um, and then after college, I wanted to start a business. I didn't know what I was good at. So I started a t-shirt company and I thought, you know, how hard could a t-shirt company be? It's very hard. <laughs> Clip notes. <laughs> but basically when you start a company, I just, I didn't know what I was good at. So I wanted to start something that I could learn everything, you know, production, manufacturing and marketing and PR and how to build an e-commerce site. You know, this is before Shopify days. And really, truly understand what I was good at. And when I launched that business, it was called Tees and Tats. Horrible name, impossible to remember or say. But basically, it was like $300 t-shirts. And it was super exclusive, limited edition, signed and numbered by this like world-famous tattoo artist. Mm -hmm. And we were selling to you know 40 stores across the country. And we launched this in 2007. And if you remember 2007, this is when Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, all these banks were going under, the major recession. Uh, so we launched the business pretty much three months before the recession hit. Worst timing. All Great the stores time. we're selling to <laughs> exactly went under. And uh, we had to, as an entrepreneur, you have to pivot. You have to change. Like, who's going to be buying $300 t-shirts? So we came up with a marketing solution that at the time was kind of cute, but it's a little gimmicky, where we tied the price of our shirts to the price of the Dow Jones. So mm -hmm. for every 100 points, the Dow dropped, they would get a discount on their t-shirt price. Nice. And I wrote Mark Cuban a letter. And Mark Cuban was one of these bloggers. Obviously, he's Mark Cuban, multi-billionaire. Mm -hmm. But he also had a blog called Blog Maverick, which I was really getting into, trying to learn as much as I could as a young entrepreneur. 
Um, I wrote him a note. I said, this is what I'm doing. And he responded within 10 minutes and said, do you mind if I post your story on my blog? So nice. he posted it really nice. It got picked up by AdAge. They wrote an article. And then it led me on this journey where I met the CEO of MV Sport, which is a large company in the promotional product space. Mm -hmm. um, and we really hit it off. And I started a business underneath MV Sport for three years. So I became kind of like an entrepreneur, if you will, like starting businesses right. underneath the bigger organization. Um, and I did that for, for three years. And then I, I left there and I started Tipped with my brother. And Tipped is a unique thing because my brother realized, and it wasn't even me, he, he realized how powerful um, the medium of YouTube is. Mm -hmm. And all these YouTube stars at the time, this is pre-Instagram, pre-Snapchat, were, were getting millions of views, literally millions of views, and they were living in their parents' basement. They were making zero money. Mm -hmm. And we were watching American Idol one night, and I remember we're watching it, and somebody was drinking like I have the Coca-Cola can, but really, you know, I don't think they really drink Coke, and obviously Coca-Cola is probably paying them millions of dollars. And then we're thinking, what if we could get product placement, which is so common right now, into YouTube videos, but it didn't exist at the time. It's like right. the Wild West. And we started brokering deals with State Farm, Colgate, Verizon into these YouTube stars videos, getting these brands millions of views and making these YouTube stars tons of money. Nice. And then when that was really successful, we said, well, what if we could do that same thing with real celebrities, not just YouTube celebrities? Like, what if we went after like Rev Run and Pitbull and 50 Cent and, and got their rights and licensing for them, their Twitter and Facebook social media? Mm -hmm. And this was very early onset of those platforms as well. So we started getting all these celebrities and bundling everything up together. The YouTube stars, the real celebrities owning their Twitter feeds before they knew how valuable Twitter was. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately that got sold to a publicly traded company. And then I kind of kept going and then ultimately started swag. Nice, dude. Uh, I, I want to go back to when you were 18, when you won the Vail yep. Film Festival, correct? Yep. And, and you said intuitively you felt this urge, like you didn't feel like, you, like in, as an 18 year old, you just won this at this festival mm -hmm. for your documentary. Yep. Did you, did you learn somehow how to, to realize, you know, to go within and just recognize a gut feeling? Or is this something that you just kind of picked up naturally? Like how, because most people, 99% of the people out there would say, Hey, I just won this film festival. I must be good at this thing and follow that path. But you said, yep. no, I'm not going to do that. Like, what is that for you? It's a good question. I do think it's more of just, uh, I didn't study it. I didn't learn it. I think it's, it is something natural to kind of feel my gut and know if I'm in the right place. Mm -hmm. I have like a very good sense of that. And I remember during the weekend of the film festival, I was going to see as many films as I could. And this was like, you know, something I was doing and these amazing films. And I was, I kept every single time I was, I ended and I left the room, I would always think to myself, I could never do something like that. Literally, I, I felt like I, I could never do what this person just did. I don't mm -hmm. even think the way that person's thinking. And it, it got me a little nervous, frankly. And I started thinking like, is this my pursuit? Is this my true calling? Is this my passion? I wasn't necessarily as passionate as you need to be. And I think anything you do in life, whether you're an entrepreneur or a filmmaker or anything, you have to really love it. You have to be, mm -hmm. to, be to, to get the, the level that, you, that I wanted to become successful. You have to be so kind of obsessed, yeah. like to kind of like in a weird way, like obsessive. And I wasn't that, I wasn't that way with film. So I, I realized that at that moment, it just 100% wasn't for me. What made you go into film in the first place? Yes, yeah, so I was I was very into marketing all through high school. I was one of these weird kids who actually liked commercials and like study brands. Like mm -hmm. it, really, it's kind of a weird thing. I would love like why one brand sold over another. They sold pretty much the exact same thing, but how one told the story. And I went to film. I was when I went to BU. I was a hundred percent going to the marketing department. That was that's what I wanted to do. But I, I one day I was just thinking like, 
let me just see before just making that decision. Let me just look at what other kind of majors, what their curriculum is. And in the same department of communications, it was the marketing and film is right down the hall. And I looked at the spreadsheet and I looked at all the kind of curriculum and it was like pretty much the exact same thing with marketing and film, except for film had extra, a little bit extra classes on how to tell stories through video. Mm-hmm. And this was right at the time of YouTube starting. And I felt like I knew YouTube was going to be huge. Even the moment, the first moment I went to, I was like hundred percent, this is going to take off. And I felt like if, if I'm going to learn something in college, I might as well learn how to tell story through the medium of film. And eventually I could probably use that to be a better marketer. Yeah. Um, so your time, like con- after that connecting with, uh, celebrities building tipped, um, yeah. you know, this is something that uh, I think is not taught enough or, or shared enough, like how people can do this. Like what's what's the process? I think these days it's easier to connect with celebrities than it has ever been, really. Um, but what's the process? Who are the first people on YouTube you started connecting with and creating partnerships? What that process look like and then evolving into the, the bigger name celebrities? Yeah, so we had to build the credibility. And frankly, I'll tell you the truth. It wasn't like we had this ultimate vision that ultimately we would get pitbulls and 50 cents and the big celebrities. I wasn't mm-hmm. ever our intention or thought in the beginning. The, the real intention was to go after YouTube stars because we thought that that was the wild west and they weren't monetizing it. And there was a clear need for helping them make money and also getting brands involved. And they just, big brands are just not thinking like that. They're not thinking of, by the way, they could have easily reached out to these YouTube stars as like we did, but they don't think to do it. So what if we build a brand like we are the agency for these YouTube stars? Mm-hmm. So we just literally reached out to all the top YouTubers. That was it, just like one by one. And then they never they never heard of us. They didn't know about us. But then you, when you get them a deal, you go to State Farm, you say, I have a relationship with Mystery Guitar Man, you know, all these different big, or Annoying Orange, or all these kind of big YouTube stars at the time. I, I think they're still pretty big. And you would get these brands and you would go to Annoying Orange and you say, hey, I'm going to pay $50,000 if you do a video for Wonderful Pistachios, right? right. And and you just broker the deals. And then you start building kind of a credibility that other YouTube stars knows about it because they're a network. They're kind of like a small um, network of people. So they're like, I just made $50,000 doing a simple video. And they, uh, we had a lot of YouTube stars reaching out to us. So once we built up that kind of credibility that we were the go-to for brokering these YouTube deals, then it became, well, now that we want celebrities, how do we get in the door with these celebrities? And we had no contact whatsoever. Um, but we knew somebody who knew somebody who knew, who knew Jesse Itzler at the time Mm-hmm. We were followers of Jesse Itzler and Jesse is an amazing guy and an amazing entrepreneur. And, you know, he's the founder of Marquee Jet, a private jet company. He's one of the founders of Zico Coconut Water, so the Coca-Cola. Right. He's now the owner of, of, um, of Atlanta Hawks. So we, we felt like if we could get Jesse as a partner in this new business idea, we would have a lot easier time getting the real celebrities. So we went after Jesse, got a meeting, pitched the idea, said we're bringing this YouTube network and audience if you bring your celebrity audience, what, what an amazing thing that we could build together. So we did that, we partnered up, and then ultimately we, uh, we got enough contracts that it was exciting for a public company. I'm not allowed to disclose it, but they bought the, they bought the whole kind of partnership, all the rights, all the relationships that mm-hmm. we put together for them. And then they made it public, they made it public, right? It's still, yeah. it's still running today. Uh, I don't, I mean, definitely the, the, the agreements are still probably running today, but it was, they I mean, rebranded been a while ago. Yeah, rebranded. It wasn't even a business. It was literally more just um, relationships that we built. It wasn't like That's anything. It was like, it was just, yeah, they, they just want the relationships. Um, when you broker a deal like that, like working with a YouTuber, how do you decide how much commission like you guys take on it? Say you do a $50,000 deal. Um, what's your percentage that you guys would take? Um, honestly, I don't even remember the exact numbers. It happened so long ago. Um, mm-hmm. 
but it was it wasn't a huge percentage. It was just like it was it was fair. It was like figuring out what the what the YouTuber like how they would react to it. Is this something that they would do? Mm-hmm. And then also trying to figure out well, how much does State Farm pay for a commercial? Well, if they're gonna get the same eyeballs on YouTube, how much would they pay for that? Is it less? Is it more? You know, it's to me. I even made the case that's even more valuable having YouTube views than a TV commercial because you can actually click into a link and actually go directly to the site. Right. You're watching TV. What do you do? You have to take out your phone. You have to. Yeah. So trying to figure out kind of the balance of what kind of budget these companies had and how much they were spending, we went after companies that we saw on TV a lot. So if we knew they had the budget to go on TV, they clearly had the budget to pay some YouTube stars to to get more views and for like one third, one fifth the price that they would pay for a commercial on TV. And then, and then, what would your percentage be that your company would take? Out of it that? would be it would be dependent on on each deal. So if it's like a big deal, we might take a little bit less. If it's a smaller deal, we might take a little bit more. It was just trying to find the right balance. And I remember when we were doing this. It wasn't really about making. I mean, yes, you have to, as a business, you have to make money. Right. But our, it, for us, it was building relationships, which I think when you're starting off with anything, is you can do things. Don't have to always think about profit from day one. But mm-hmm. you should think about learning. You should think about building relationships. You should think about refining and optimizing the actual product that you're offering. Um, and then you can always figure out, you know, how to make money, how to squeeze more money out of things along the way. Is there an industry industry standard for, for brokers to take like a certain percentage for deals like that? I, I wouldn't even know at this point. I mean, no. this is, this is a, I mean, literally almost like nine years ago. So I think things have changed. This is pre Instagram. I mean, now every single, you know, Instagrammer is making, you know, $50,000 a post, right? This, Instagram didn't exist at this point. This yeah. Snapchat didn't exist. It was very early. It was we were making things up, you know, as we went. That's okay. At this yeah, point. that makes sense. Cool, man. Let's talk about swag. Um, can you outline the business model for us so people understand what's really oh. unique about swag and why you guys have been so successful? Yeah. So swag.com is what we like to think is the best place for companies to buy quality promotional products that people will actually want to keep. So we realized is there's obviously every single company in the world buys swag, you know, whether you're buying it for like the office manager buys it for engaging with their employees and keeping the company culture thriving, HR managers buy it for onboarding new hires. You have the sales team that buys it for helping close leads and sales marketing team buys it for trade shows, events, or virtual events, all these different divisions buy promotional products, but oftentimes there's no really easy platform to buy it. It's very manual. Like it's historically very manual fragmented process where you would go to a rep and they would give you a huge catalog and you have to look through thousands upon thousands of pages or products. And then you would say, Hey, can I get this t-shirt with, you know, a front logo and the back logo? And they'd have to go back and forth 40 or so emails. Hey, well, how many colors are in your logo? Because mm-hmm. promotional products is fully dynamic pricing. It takes into consideration quantity that you're looking to buy, how many print locations, front and the back, left sleeve, right sleeve, and the number of colors in the print. Like there's a three color print, it's more expensive than the one color print. All these things need to be worked in tandem. Right. And historically, a lot of the players in our industry have zero tech platform whatsoever. So out of 30,000 companies that sell promotional products, literally 99.9% of them have no website or have like a landing page and all they do is capture emails and then they do all this on a manual level. There's yeah. about a hundred companies that have any sort of e-commerce experience. And even some of the bigger ones that have any e-commerce experience, there's no way to even upload your logo to mock it up and see what the product looks like. So you have to submit the logo and then they have to create a mock-up for you. Very manual. Um, so what we did from the very beginning, the initial idea is only curated products, not overwhelm you with too many options. Make sure that every product on our site has been tested, vetted by us so that people actually get the product. They actually want to keep it. And then let's create a really strong brand and a great user experience. So 
even the e-commerce sites, if you went through it, it would take you 10 to 15 minutes and you'd still have to do a lot of manual process after the order's placed to get the order going through the process. Right. Our site, less than three minutes. Find the product, upload your logo. Our system detects how many colors are in the logo with the nearest Panto match, mock it up, price it out in real time, add it to your cart and go through the checkout. Now, what we also added about two years ago, we started to notice that office managers and the companies in general are working from home. A lot of people were starting to work from home. So we started to build our swag distribution platform, allowing companies to buy you know, a thousand t-shirts and send it to their office or click a button and send those a thousand t-shirts to our online warehouse. We call it like our online swag closet where they could Storage. hold all of those thousand t-shirts in inventory, mm -hmm. see their inventory in real time. Whenever they're running low in stock, get smart notifications to restock. And if they want to send those a thousand t-shirts to one address or to a thousand different addresses, they could upload the CSV file. We'll calculate the shipping cost in real time. They pay for it. Wow. And now we're blasting t-shirts all over the world. So that's what we started to really start to build out. Now, before the pandemic, it was a very nice to have because we thought the ship would happen in the next five years. Mm -hmm. But the pandemic made it like a necessity. Everyone's working from home. Everyone's so disconnected. So last year where the whole industry is down between 20 and 40%, um, everyone's down. We were up over hundred percent last year. And the reason is people needed to stay connected. And we had a solution that allows them to stay connected. So they go through the site, click a button, everything's held in inventory. They could separate it. They could say, I want the marketing closet for the marketing team. Only 20 people in the marketing team should get access. I want to create an inventory closet for the sales team. Only the sales people get access to London office, New York office, permission settings, approval flows. We built all these different kinds of swag management um, process that we give to our customers for free. There's no membership fee. There's nothing. We like to think of it as an extension of our e-commerce site. So just so easy it is to buy hundred t-shirts. Now you could buy hundred t-shirts, hold an inventory, distribute those hundred t-shirts, create a giveaway page, capture the recipient's address. You know, a lot of marketers mm -hmm. have everyone's email address, but they don't know what t-shirt size you are. They don't know what address you are on our site. You could upload your logo, select your colors, blast out a landing page. The recipient sees this thing, inputs their t-shirt size, input their address, it speaks to our system, we distribute. So just making the whole process a lot easier for customers and also a lot cheaper because frankly, our shipping rates are a lot better than customer shipping rates and we just pass our shipping rates to our customers. So we don't even look to make money on that side of the business. It's just to make the process seamless for them. Right. And so do you guys have actual warehouses that are holding? Yeah. You do. The first thing that comes to mind is like for me, I mean, there's got to be a limit to how much you can hold in your warehouse unless your warehouse is just ginormous, right? How do you no, manage we're, we're that? Working, yeah, we're working at this point with three PLs. So we don't build our own facility. Kind of our whole strategy as a business in general is we don't hold any inventory unless somebody pays for it. So if somebody's buying right. a thousand t-shirts on our site, they actually place the order first. We are right. integrated with our suppliers. So once we actually get paid up front, then we owe our suppliers net 30. So we have great cash flow. The same right. thing with our holding own warehouse. They buy a thousand t-shirts. We get paid up front. We then place it over with the supplier. Supplier prints it, and they ship it directly to our 3PL, and we start warehousing. So we have a facility that's over 100,000 square feet, mm -hmm. but we're using it with other companies, and now we're opening up a couple of several other locations throughout the U.S., one in Oklahoma to City, one in New Jersey, to have just more, you know, you know, more bandwidth to handle things because it is a, it definitely is a challenge. You know, you think about when you turn on the TV, you press a button, and you see immediate results. Right, it turns on. With distribution, it's a lot more complicated. If somebody makes a distribution of 3,000 shipments, it doesn't just ship out. It's not magic. It's not just like you need to actually get the order in. You have to have manpower to pick and package, put the stuff in the box and ship it out. Yeah. Ideally, we try to ship it that day or the next day, but it could be three, four days later. And what our goal is, if we could onboard more 3PLs, we can kind of allow that distribution process to be a lot quicker. So we can like siphon off orders and put orders here or orders there to have a lot more manpower to handle it.
Is there a limit to how long people can keep things in the warehouse? Nope. And is there a max amount? No, no, so they can keep it. So how we do it is we charge for certain things. So the mm -hmm. extra charges for the platform, there's no platform fee, but there's a storage fee. And I'll get to that in a second. And then there's the pick and package and shipping fees. Now, Pick and package means when somebody makes a distribution, we have to grab it off the shelf. We have to package it up. So we have a pick and package fee that includes the packaging, the tape, the labeling, the resources to actually package the stuff up and then ship it out. Our feeling is, and what we've seen is that our shipping rate plus the pick and package is less expensive than if somebody had to ship it out themselves because our rates are a lot less in shipping. And also obviously we're saving people time from it not having to ship thousands of stuff to their office or to their home at this point and packaging things up, which would be a nightmare. The storage fee is a very nominal fee. What we do is when somebody buys, let's say a thousand t-shirts, the first 14 days that's in that warehouse, it's free. We don't charge a storage fee. So if somebody just wants to buy stuff in a warehouse so that we can consolidate it and ship it out immediately. Their intention is to distribute swag. We're just using the 3PL as a, 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 like a central place to consolidate. Mm -hmm. So we're not actually charging a storage fee for that. That's not the intention. If they start holding things over 14 days, we charge one cent per day. That's it. You know, like the 3PLs, any warehouse has a very kind of, convoluted and confusing process of how they charge. They have like receiving fees. They have pallet building fees. They have labeling fees. They have all these fees that if we ever want to show our customers, they would be like, what are you talking about? We're not dealing, <laughs> right? We're not dealing with logistics experts. We're dealing with marketing teams and HR right. managers and office managers. So what we try to do is simplify it as much as possible. If you have a thousand t-shirts on Monday, it's a thousand cents for that day, which is $10. If you distribute 900 t-shirts on Tuesday, you're left with a hundred t-shirts. That's a hundred cents, which is $1. Right. So we only charge you one cent per the day that's actually happening. You see the storage fee in real time. End of the month, you have to pay it off. Has anybody ever forgot about their inventory with you? They're, they're just like three years later, they're like, oh yeah, I forgot no. I had it. <laughs> well, that, that might happen. But at this point, we've only really launched it January, February of 2020. So it's only been a year at this point. Oh, with the, not with swag, but with side. the distribution. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. E-commerce side of swag has been, you know, since January, 2016, we yeah. have over 5,000 customers, but now it's been only a year at this point with our distribution platform. I love this model. What made you come up with that? Like what, where was the idea that, Hey, let's, let's, let's give these people a place to store their, their, their swag while they're waiting to distribute it and send it out instead of them having to do it in a back office. Do themselves, or, yeah. yeah. So our, our, our initial idea was let's get into the, the business from making it a simple e-commerce experience. So forget the distribution, just allowing people to easily buy stuff. And that's how our industry is set up. It's for easily buying and then you drop ship it directly to their office. That was the, the common thing. Right. Uh, my co-founder and I, we were in Techstars. It's like an incubator, tech incubator. We were in Chicago and... One of the meetings that was set up with us was an office manager at this company called, I forget, I forget the name exactly, Hot Jelly or Jelly something. And we went to the office manager and I was talking to her and she had something called account-based marketing. Now, mm -hmm. I never heard of this term ever and they were very early to be doing this, but the whole concept of account-based marketing is the ability to send gifts to somebody to make them act. So whether it's a customer to say thank you, whether it's a lead, you send somebody, they're 10 times more likely to act if you send them a gift. You know, you, how many things as a salesperson you possibly do? You give them a phone call, you send them an email, you ping them a link. You get annoying at some point, but if you send somebody a gift, what are they going to say? They're going to say, thank you. People mm -hmm. are programmatically, and this is something that we realized, to avoid ads at all costs, right? Just think about it. People skip through commercials, right? They fast forward. People flip through the ads in the magazine. People online, you know, they put the ad blocker and they're avoiding ads at all costs. What do you say when somebody gives you something of quality? Someone gave you cookies or someone gave you a nice hat that had their logo on this really high quality, a nice water bottle. You're going to say, thank you. It's yeah. literally the only thing where you actually say thank you and you feel like appreciate it. It's something that you actually want. 
Yeah. It does the exact opposite if it's throwaway. If it's products that are, end up in the trash or not quality, it not only costs your company money for buying that stuff, but it tarnishes your brand. Right. So we just said we have to make sure it's high quality stuff. And now if we're allowing people to distribute swag or sending leads, like you can't always fly across the country for that business meeting. What if you could press a button and then it does it for you? Yeah. So that was like the idea for it. And from 2017, we started to really game plan and figure out how to really build this in a really elegant, organic way that is simple for the customer because it is a very complex thing. So we're still working through all the kinks. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to fulfillment. There's a lot of breakage points re realistically. I mean, imagine somebody buys a thousand mugs and they want to hold an inventory. What if 90 of the mugs break in transit? It's like not necessarily our fault. It's UPS's fault. It's whoever's fault, right? Mm -hmm. We have to replace those mugs and the customer expects to have a thousand, but now they have not. So you do that. What if you're doing swag boxes for somebody and they have a notebook and a pen and a water ball and this, and what if one of the vendors just happens to, you know, somebody gets sick, especially with COVID, this happened a lot where vendors in the middle of their day just have to shut down for two weeks. Yeah. So then we can't actually kit boxes because we're waiting on one pro product that was supposed to be delivered and now we have to go to the customer and apologize so like there's so many things that are just out of our control so we're trying to constantly learn that refine it and have backup kind of plans and just i guess be very open to our customers and being proactive and telling them what's going on and being just honest about it you know if something's out of our control we're going to do everything we can even to fix it because at the end of the day if they're buying from us they're buying from us they don't care that it's a supplier issue. They don't care if it's a COVID issue. They don't care if it's UPS issue. They care that they're not getting the products on time. So we're just constantly trying to figure out how to how to be, you know, very open and very, um, you know, proactive to make sure they have a great experience. To your point about like having really good quality swag, it, it's so true. Um, I, I can think of the business conferences that I've been to and the t-shirts that they give out during those conferences. And one year, this conference had a really good, high quality eco shirt that felt so nice. And all the other times they created um, t-shirts, the t-shirts maybe last two, max three years. Mm -hmm. That shirt's now five years old and I still mm -hmm. wear it on a regular basis. And it's just mm -hmm. like, it means something. Also like like pins, I got this pin mm -hmm. as well. Like when you give out high quality swag, it says something about your brand, but also um, it's really etching into people's minds the quality mm -hmm. of, of the company that you're running. Mm -hmm. and, and I couldn't, like, it's, it's such a genius idea what you guys are doing. I couldn't, you know, recommend it more for the entrepreneurs out there. There. Thank you. Think about high quality swag. Always, always, always cool. Um, I, I want to talk about, you know, you, you've created these amazing partnerships in your past business, but now you've done that with swag as well. So like you have partnerships with TikTok, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, Netflix, and Spotify. What are some of the strategies that you've used to create these types of partnerships and how did they develop and what are they today? Yeah. So early on when you're starting as a business, you have no relationships historically. Right. Um, and I think most entrepreneurs are always told this kind of like ingrained in entrepreneurs minds to start at the bottom and work, work your way up. Like you see it all over the place. You, you're never going to get Facebook from day one, you know, build up, build your credibility, build up this, build up that. And then ultimately, right. and Josh and I, my co-founder, we just didn't want to wait, frankly. And we thought we didn't need that. You know, we had a really strong brand that could kind of maybe cut through some noise and give us some credibility, even if we didn't have any credibility in the space. So we did is our goal was to get Facebook from day one. It was to get WeWork from day one. It was to go after these big blue chip global companies from day one, because our feeling is even if we didn't have a site, if we just had a landing page with a picture of a t-shirt, right? Mm -hmm. On swag.com that said coming soon or upgrade, up, updating and had a row of logos with Facebook and Google and Netflix and all these companies, companies would in, instantly trust us. They'd be like, oh, swag.com is a real place. 
so that yeah. we could actually go after customers and learn. So our first year was, it was interesting. We became traveling salesmen for the first three months just to get those blue chip companies. I couldn't care less about making money. I didn't care about the margin. I honestly would have paid for some of these customer logos. Like I remember when we sold to Facebook, it was our first customer. We were in the door, we sold to Facebook 3000 t-shirts. I made maybe 5% margin. I basically gave it away for free. And I left the office talking to Josh and I said, I would have paid $5,000 to have Facebook buy that stuff from us. Like it didn't, to us, it was all about getting that logo because the right. second day I knew how powerful it was. The second day when I went to WeWork and I said, and they asked me, who else do you work with? That's literally the question when you're starting up. They say, who else do you work with? I said Facebook and they probably assume we had thousands of customers, but really it was literally just Facebook because this was day two uh -huh. and we got WeWork. And then when WeWork, and it was very important for us to get WeWork in the very beginning because right. WeWork had this thing called the WeWork summer camp. I don't know if you heard of this, but basically they have 5,000 kids or adults or young adults who work at WeWork in different companies, go to a campground for three days and just party their faces off, okay. right? It was just one of these things where it's like a big thing and they had Ice Cube perform. They had, it was like a massive global party, four hours outside of New York City. And it was a big deal. And okay. our feeling was, this is literally the month two of our entire business. We have to get this deal. We have to make the t-shirts for WeWork Summer Camp. There was no other alternative. I would have paid $20,000 of my own personal money to get this deal. And the uh -huh. reason for every t-shirt on our, uh, that we sell is swag.com on the inner label. It says swag.com size large. We made this our tagline. Uh -huh. So 5,000 people are now seeing that we work the social proof that we works using swag.com. They now learn who swag.com is. They'll ultimately check out who swag.com is. And we got this deal. We ended up, we probably ultimately lost money on the deal. We probably made 10% margin on the actual order. They said to us, have you ever rolled, you know, 5,000 t-shirts because rolling it to make it easy to give out. We're like, of course we have, of course we have <laughs> <laughs> all the time. It's literally week two of our business all the time. hundred percent. I went back, asked my parents, my grandma, this is no joke, there's pictures, <laughs> aunts, uncles, sister, we're rolling t-shirts for three days in my house, uh -huh. rolling t-shirts. It was a nightmare. We ended up rolling 5,000 t-shirts, renting a U-Haul, driving four hours to the campground the night before. It was, and that was it. Then we went to the summer camp and we got literally 30 customers just from that one WeWork summer camp. Getting like In the early days, it's so hard to get anybody. Now we're getting customers, we're getting partners, we're getting our name out there. We're getting more WeWork orders because now they trust us. We did a great job. Mm -hmm. It was just like, it was everything in the beginning. So that was like the early days of just hustling. And then the strategy shifted. It became, well, now that we have enough social proof, we don't need to be traveling salesmen anymore. That's, that's not necessarily effective with our time. Right. We have to build a product that could handle the sales automatically. So those first kind of 30 to 50 customers that we got early days, it was to get the social proof, but it was also really just to learn. Learn who the customer is. Learn who should we go after. Should we go after the marketing team? Should we go after the office manager? Like, who are we really kind of going after? And we realized from the early days, the office manager should be our first kind of target. Even though we knew that there's other divisions that spend way more on swag, we figured that the marketing team is probably bombarded by the 30,000 companies in the space. Mm -hmm. The sales teams are probably being bombarded. The HR teams, the office manager, no one really thinks to go to the office manager, but they still have a budget. It's not as big a budget. Everyone's always trying to hunt the biggest budgets, but our strategy was different. It was how do we just get into the company? Forget about the first sale. It's about the second, third, fourth, fifth, Etc. It's like a Trojan horse strategy. Right. Get the 22 to 23 year old office manager to buy hundred t-shirts. What's going to happen with that is that every t-shirt says swag.com. They're going to be giving it out to the marketing team. They're going to be giving it out to the sales team. Now the other departments say, wow, our company uses internally swag.com. Maybe I should use swag.com for my needs. And it became kind of like a Trojan horse to get in and expand. Mm. And we started to really learn who our, who our buyer is so we could build the right platform for them. And then we launched the first version of e-commerce in 2017. And up until 
I mean, it's not finalized yet, but we just made an offer on our first outbound sales hire ever. So we did over 15 million in sales last year and we've had zero outbound sales, which is, wow. it's a big accomplishment in our industry because our industry is, everyone's doing sales. It's all about outbound sales teams and we have none. It's completely inbound. It's completely self-serve. It's completely product focused. And now our organization is going from like a product, strictly, strictly product focused to now obviously keeping up the product, but now adding a layer of a sales team as well on top right. of it. You're going with the outbound sales now or working towards that. What what was the point where you said, okay, we need to start making this as uh, uh, like outside of the company to to streamline or like what yeah. was reasoning? Yeah, the reasoning in the beginning to not do outbound sales was very focused because when you ever add a salesperson, it, it adds more work, it adds more friction. Right, right. If someone could land on my site and they could do it themselves, our site is that easy where they could upload their logo, mock it up. Why add friction with the salesperson? So we've always been very focused on not having a salesperson. But recently we realized for us to get the bigger deals, the more enterprise level deals, the hundred thousand plus dollar deals, we need an outbound sales strategy because what happens is imagine I'm trying to sell you. I send you an email. Hey, name is Jeremy. I work for swag.com. We're the best place, blah, 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 blah. Love for you to check out swag.com. Now, if I reach out to you today, you're most likely not looking for swag, right? I have no idea who you are. I, don't, I just know that you work for a company. You have 50 to a thousand employees and you're an office manager. I know your role, but I have no idea your use case. I don't know when you're buying it. When you click on our link and you go to our site, now you're going to see how easy the process is. You're going to see our, our brand. You're going to see who we work with. You're going to feel kind of connected to swag.com. The brand name is going to stick in, inside your mind so that in eight months later, when you actually do on swag and your boss says, hey, can you buy some swag? You're going to hear swag.com. You're going to right. remember swag.com. You're going to be retargeted with swag.com. And you'll ultimately won't have to go to Google to search for a company. You'll just type directly into the browser swag.com. So our feeling is to get those bigger deals we need to kind of get on the radar way earlier than them when they're even looking. Because when they're looking, we're competing with five other companies who are doing Google ads. We're competing with 20 other companies who have content marketing. There's more of a competition at that point. And right. people are probably more price sensitive also at that point because they're price shopping. And they're, and a lot of people I always say is like, you should price shop 100%. You need to feel confident with the price, but don't overprice shop because it's not apples to apples. Like it's not the same products on each site. So if you see one product that looks similar, Trust us, it's not. We've seen thousands of products that look the same, pens that all look the same, and you write them, it can't write it all. We're kind of curating it and making sure that every product on our site has been hand-vetted and tested and tested amongst other similar products as well. And it's very hard to get that across when customers are price shopping so much. So we really want yeah. people to get in the door and understand that they're going to feel confident with what they, with what they buy from us. You, you did 15.5 uh, in 2020. What's your goal for yeah. 2021? Um, our goal is to do over 30, you know, every year we want to keep growing and we think it's very possible. Um, it's weird because typical, typical years, there's a lot of seasonality to the business. Mm -hmm. So just for example, I, I, I can even go through last year, 2020 was obviously the weirdest year ever for everybody, but 20 January, and February of 2020 were more than double the January, February of the previous year, 2019 March comes around pandemic launches 200,000. The first week of March, the second week of March would do 19,000. So it becomes like, well, what the hell's Ouch. going on? And yeah. by the way, and, and the truth is, it makes a lot of sense. And that's the reason why the whole industry is really, really down. Yeah. Office managers are not necessarily buying swag because there's no office. No one's in the office. HR managers are not buying swag because there's no one being hired at this point. Event marketing team is not buying swag because there's no vents. There's no marketing, right? Yeah. So there's all these divisions that are just completely shutting down. Our bread and butter business just doesn't exist really. So we had to think outside the box and we really went all in on the distribution platform because we said, if everyone's so disconnected, what can we do to allow companies to be more connected than ever? 
and distribution was the answer to us. So our sales went from like 850, 850, 350, 350, 400. Like it went like more than half. In, and then it started building up so that in November of last year, we did 3.4 million. In mm -hmm. December, we did 3.25 million. So our feeling is every year, it usually starts a little bit slower and then it picks up a little bit around March, April. But that's typically because of trade shows and events. Right. This year, it's going to be very different because there are no trade shows and events. Our feeling is the first half of the year is going to be very slow just by the nature of the use case. But the second half of the year is going to be really, really huge because mm -hmm. if the pandemic starts to the end and people are getting back into the office, if people are needing to hire more people, a lot of onboarding kids, if people want to do gifting to their, to their best customers, which happens usually in Q4, or gifting to their remote employees, which happens in Q4, it's going to be super, super busy the second half of the year. So we're trying to figure out you know, use cases for now to try to fill those gaps. And we've done pretty well so far. So we're just trying to keep it up and trying to get those numbers. How big is the team, Jeremy? It's swag. We have about 35 people in New York, mm -hmm. and we have a team of 18 developers in Ukraine. I, I got to ask you, you know, it seems like you've been a natural prodigy of whatever in whatever you've thrown yourself into since a very young age. You know, you won the Vail Fem Festival, then you, you started another business, uh, build up tipped into a company that can be sold, uh, worked with all these influencers, a company that can be sold and publicly traded. And, um, and it seems like you're really good at picking winners. So I'm curious, you know, you're, I think you're 34 now. Is that right? 35, 35. And, um, so why do you think either you're good at picking winners or what do you think that like magical spark is for you that, um, that people either don't have or don't know about themselves? Um, I don't necessarily know if I'm good at picking winners. I've definitely had failures as well. There's been um, startups that I've launched that just have never materially taken off. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, it's just being okay with the failure and being okay to learn from the failure and be okay just getting better. And I think just putting yourselves out there, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get in their own way and they get fearful that, oh, is my idea good enough? Am I the right person to do it? And they just prevent themselves from doing great things. And I think for me, I've never really had that fear that fear just doesn't exist inside me. So I'm okay, you know, when people kind of judge me or, or think that, you know, this is not going to work out, you know, cause that's like outside pressure. I'm totally okay with that. And I'm also okay when I launch something, if it doesn't work right away, because I never expected to launch right away. And I try to teach my team right now that we do a feature. It's most likely not going to work from day one, but hopefully we'll learn something from it and we'll keep improving it. And as long as we can keep learning from our customers and keep improving, ultimately the idea will be great. And that's it. I think just as, as if, you have, if you're open-minded that you, you're super consistent with things and you keep trying to work towards a goal and make things better and better and better, you're going to make You're going to get to the place where you want to be. You just have to be consistent. And a lot of people, I think once they hit any type of roadblocks or any kind of fear or internal doubts or even anything, they just give up or they start second guessing themselves. And at that point, I know that's part of the process. So I just push through. Nice. What's your long-term goal as an entrepreneur, you know, say 40 years from now, what do you, what do you want your, your legacy to be? I just want to obviously be successful, but I want to have fun with it. I want to enjoy my life. I think you have to enjoy what you're doing. Otherwise, like what's the point of life? It's not just to make money. It can't just be the goal of everyone to make money. There's easy, trust me, there's way easier ways to make money than being an entrepreneur. It's one of the <laughs> hardest things possibly. If it was just about money, I would have sucked it up and I would have became like a hedge fund or a banker. I just uh -huh. would have sucked it just done. Like, right. There's way easier ways. Um, but you have to love it. And I love it. I love having an idea and I love seeing the idea come to life. And I love 
the ups and the downs of it. And ultimately, even if things really work out and I sell swag or we go pop, whatever happens with swag and I become super successful, you know, I want to make it the most successful that possibly could be. And then, you know, you start something else and start something new later on. You know, there's, to me, it's just about creating, building and really, you know, making a change and making a difference. Right. That's very cool. And I, I know you're passionate about spreading like positivity and kindness. You actually started up an app and I don't know if it's still live or not called uh, Up, which allows you to anonymously spread kindness to the world. Is that is yeah. that still going? Um, no, I haven't worked on that. In, it was really a passion project. So what happened was I was trying to figure out what my next move was going to be. This was after one of my company's uh, Vouch, it was a social networking app. It got 100,000 plus users celebrity, a lot of people involved. It just mm -hmm. didn't work out. It didn't take off to where it needed to be. And I was did that for three years, literally. And I was thinking to myself, what's the next business? And during that kind of down period where I was thinking of swag and trying to get that process going, um, I said, you know what, let me build an app. This is at the right at the time. There's an app called Whisper and there's an app called, I think it was called Secret. That was literally like ruining or Yik Yak. There's another company. It was all these anonymous apps. Um, that were raising t millions upon millions of dollars and they were literally designed to bully people. That's literally all they did. It was just like really? bullying. It was high school kids. Oh yeah, it was what? like anonymous bullying. It was, look it up, secret, yik yak. It was people just like making fun of people anonymously. Wow. And I just thought that was like, what is wrong with, literally what's wrong with people? So I tried to build an app on my free time um, you know, that could literally just be anonymous kindness. So you could send somebody a message. And I figured a lot of people are not very open about complimenting somebody or giving somebody right. a pat on the back. People are kind of maybe fearful, especially in high school. You know, you, you might be like the popular kid and you might see somebody getting bullied. And you don't want to put yourself out on the line mm -hmm. for whatever social pressure. So I thought it could be an interesting thing because most people are good in this world. Um, but you got to maybe make it easier for them to be good. So if we can give them, allowing like them that. to send a message, um, so I did that for a little bit. I, I, I hope I helped, you know, people, but then at some point when, when vouch, you know, was taking off, I allowed our partners in that to continue to run it. And, and I don't think they've kept it up as well as they probably should have. Um, I'm curious, you know, I'm kind of passionate about the spreading positivity and kindness to the world. What are ways that in Germany that you, what are some things on a daily basis that you implement that to make sure it's a regular part of your life? Um, for me, I, I'm, I'm Orthodox Jewish, so I, I do pray every morning and I do tefillin. And I think for me, it's an important thing. After I work out, I have a routine in the morning and I do my prayer and I, uh, you know, I'm thankful for what I have and, and hopeful for the future. I think just setting your, your, your mindset into a positive place, I think just makes you a better person overall. Um, and then throughout the day, it's like, I don't think there's one thing you could do. I think just be a good person, be kind, be compassionate you know, understand that we're all dealing with stuff and people, let's say employees mess up one day, you know, everyone's, you know, disconnected, everyone's scared, everyone's working from home, everyone hasn't seen their family or friends, like understanding where people are and what they're, you know, what everyone's going through. I think just having a little bit more compassion with, with everything, I think just makes people, uh, makes the world a little bit better. I love that, man. Anything else, Jeremy, you'd like to say to the listeners before we wrap up? Um, obviously come and check us out swag.com. You could reach out to me, Jeremy Parker at, you know, at LinkedIn, um, love to hear from you and love to help you guys out with whatever you need. Cool. Jeremy, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Great. Thanks for having me. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you all on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. 
These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.